All right, take it away. All righty. Welcome to Idol Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney on the newest podcast from Idol Thumbs. It might be the weekend, but that takes on a different meaning here when it's sort of the holiday season. We're both on break. We're both back with our families. Rob, what is a Zachney family Christmas look like? Uh, well, it, it's pretty lazy, uh, to be honest. My, <laughs> you know, the thing is, there's there's sort of always been a tension in my family uh, where. My mom is kind of the really uh, family-oriented one, like extended family-oriented, right? Like if if she had her way, uh, we would be sort of going out and seeing all of her, uh, you know, ten brothers and sisters and my plethora of cousins. Uh, Yeah, and my father, I think, has always been a bit of a uh, he's very much a homebody, and that's definitely how we kind of end up rolling. And so the, the bargain is up until Christmas, everything is about family and then come midnight stroke of midnight, Christmas, Christmas day, uh, start of Christmas day. Uh, we become hermits basically. Nice. And it's all about sort of staying in and just hanging out, opening gifts. Uh, and then, Usually enjoying those gifts during the day, which uh, when I was a kid, you know, it sort of meant hooking up, uh, you know, new electronics, stuff like that. As everyone has gotten older, uh, the rest of Christmas Day has, in my parents' case, become, well, my parents will nap with the dogs. Yeah. And everyone will read their their new books. Oh, that sounds lovely. (laughs) It sounds really, really nice. When I was young... Uh, Christmas was an an obsessive time. We saw every relative. I have a huge family too, but I I didn't realize your your mom has ten brothers and sisters. That's that's impressive. Um, I have like dozens and dozens and dozens of cousins. Just so many cousins. Um, we grew up, you know, knowing pretty much everybody. You know, it, it's we lived in Rhode Island. Most people don't really leave Rhode Island. <laughs> it's uh, you know, people tend to stay, stick around a little bit, so on and so forth. Um, but I used to see everybody. There used to be like a big party, all sorts of stuff. Over the years, my mother has kind of, and she's, my mother is definitely the driving force of my family. Uh, she has kind of become more and more and more into the Christmas vacation view of Christmas versus the sort of magical, it's a wonderful life, Mm. you know, sort of miracle on 34th street sort of Christmas. Uh, not that she doesn't like Christmas. She does. But I think the stress of it, especially when we were young, has just made her be like, no, it's just family. It's just us, the four of us, you know. So you will have some people visit, but it, it's similar to what you do. With one exception, we always go to the Christmas Eve performance of A Christmas Carol at the Trinity Repertory Theater, which is a little local theater in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, sort of associated with Brown University. I'm not, you know, a huge theater nerd. I did... Right a bit of theater in college, but I have always been impressed by, you know, especially for like a smaller sort of place. We but do it, but that. it's not like a community theater train wreck. No, 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 okay. not it, by any means. No, it's totally, it's a professional theater. Uh, actually, one of the actors is uh, an actor who sort of appears in every Farrelly Brothers movie. Uh, you know, there's there's okay. a few folks you might, you know, know of, you know, they're, they're sort of local actors, but they've, you know, certainly been in other things. It's really nice. It's really awesome. Uh, and then Christmas Day, pretty much, is 
play with your presence, which for me still means video games, which is wonderful. Uh, it often means books and it often means uh, boxing gear or, you know, jujitsu geese, things like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. You know, this is something that, that has definitely changed uh, since I moved away. There's not enough, there's not as much gaming as I would like over the holidays because, you know, all my stuff is back home. Basically. Sure. I'm thinking yeah. maybe this year I'll bring the, I'll bring the PlayStation or, or something like that. But, you know, I'm primarily a PC gamer and I've got my desktop and that's, that's not coming home. And back in the day, of it course. was, yeah. you know, once upon a time I, I would, that came home from college every year. And, and now it's like, you know, maybe, uh, you know, a week away or, or a week or, or maybe two weeks away from the computer is not going to be the worst thing in the world, but it has what, what's been lost a little bit is, uh, you know, some of that sense of holiday ritual. Yeah. Basically, as soon as I could get away from my parents, right? Like, I, okay, <laughs> yeah. fine. I'll, I'll help you clean up everything, and you know, we'll 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 clean up after our celebration. Okay, are, are we done? Oh, we have to we have to see my grandparents. Okay, well, we'll go see my grandparents. Fine, we'll, we'll deal with that. Uh, okay, now are we done? Yes, we're finally done. And then the rest of the day kind of became this um, <laughs> gorging on entertainment, uh, sure, right? And sure. the twenty fifth was when the last of whatever family obligations didn't get wrapped up by Christmas Eve. And then I'd spend all day on the 26th uh, just kind of shut in at home uh, with my stuff. That became harder to, like, hold the line on that as I get older. And obviously, like, significant others get involved. And you have more friends you want to see and and stuff like that. But uh, once upon a time, like, you know, starting around the afternoon of Christmas Day and all the way to, you know, the 27th, there was absolutely nothing to do. There was nothing but like leftover food. Everyone just got to sort of ignore each other and go do the stuff they wanted to do, which in my case was play the new games. I had a very similar ritual when I was young, and it was once we've eaten, I was allowed to, I always had to wear like a really, really ridiculous little dress and like curlers in the hair, like the whole get up. I had to look like a very, very adorable little girl. I was allowed After every holiday, once I ate the meal, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, uh, even Easter sometimes, uh, once the meal was eaten, I was allowed to change into my play clothes that I could get dirty and either go play outside or like, you know, play Nintendo, basically, or Sega, Uh, which, you know, meant Genesis at the time, but people called it Sega. It was, you know, sort of the thing. And so I would get really, really excited for this, you know, and obviously as I grew up, I was allowed to wear whatever clothes I wanted. So that portion of it sort of (laughs) died down, but it was always after the meal, you're cut loose, you're free kid, have fun. And that is when I would just dig into my new games. And it was, those are just definitely the happiest memories I've ever had. And many of them were, you know, doing the pass the controller thing with a cousin or with my sister or whoever, you know sort of having special time with family, but also with my games was always a, a lovely time as well. Putting on jeans and playing video games. Like it's just, <laughs> just thinking about it makes me happy and feel like a little kid again. So Danielle, I'm curious if there are any uh, holidays that really stick out in your memory, like special events or stuff that you always find yourself thinking about this time of year. There is Christmas 1993 when I got my Super Nintendo and I got Aladdin for the SNES. Now, a lot of people would scoff at that and be like, mm, the Genesis version was better. Whatever. It was a great platformer. I loved Aladdin like you wouldn't believe. It was a, just a wonderful time in my life. The next year, I got Star Fox. That was incredible. I remember sort of 
I got this new cool sweatshirt and I was playing Star Fox and I felt really good about both of them. So I was definitely wearing the sweatshirt while playing Star Fox, feeling like this is my flight suit. This sweatshirt had nothing to do with (laughs) flying or Star Fox or anything. It was like a little blue sweatshirt with a little mountain on it, but I felt cool. So that was awesome. But probably my two most potent ones were actually 97 and 98. I remember them so clearly. In 1997, for me, it was Diddy Kong Racing. I, you know, I I got a lot of other really cool presents, um, but that was probably my favorite game on the Nintendo 64. You know, looking back, like, that's maybe the best game, I think, uh, for how creative and colorful and awesome it was. It was both, you know, sort of a Mario Kart-style racer, but it also had adventure elements. It had little bits of Mario 64 DNA in it that, that just had these hooks and really got those hooks into me. I remember playing that game so obsessively on Christmas day, sort of again, after the dinner when I was allowed to, you know, sort of go and and do my own thing. I remember I had a nosebleed. (laughs) I remember this so clearly and I was so into this race and it was one of the sort of dinosaur races in the first world. Um, and I just, I was like bleeding from my face and I didn't even care because I was so enraptured. I was like, no, I need to beat Pipsy the mouse in this, in this, you know, amazing dinosaur racetrack. So blood just like streaming down your face. Basically. Yes. I mean, it wasn't like arterial spray or anything, (laughs) you know, it wasn't that gruesome, but it was definitely like bleeding onto my shirt and just like, no, I don't care. I don't care. I've got to beat Pipsy. It was just incredible incredible moment that i know that sounds weird that it was uh you know this is such a happy moment but god that game wonderful wonderful game something i hope to play again in my life at some point and my second one that is just really that strong and that special was actually again this might be a little cheesy but it was the next year is 1998 uh and it was ocarina of time on the n64 as well Uh, I had never played a Zelda game at that point, never played Link to the Past, never played any of the Zelda games. And it just looked appealing to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I just I was the sort of kid. I loved platformers. That was my thing, like racing games, platformers, puzzle games, you know, all sorts of stuff. But had never really played anything even resembling an RPG or sort of a more, you know, sort of stratified, I guess, adventure game. Something that was a little less about just jumping on things and a little more about solving puzzles and sort of in the environment and that sort of thing. Uh, and I just remember sort of being in the sort of Dodongo's cavern area. I made it that far sort of uh, on the first day and just felt so enraptured by this game. Like I so completely into this world that, that looked beautiful. I mean, it, especially at the time, it looked gorgeous. It sounded interesting. It had all these characters and this sort of rich, at least for me again at the time, it felt like very rich world building. And I felt very much a part of this world. Uh, and I just, I played that game nonstop for, for two months. I, I don't think I beat it until February around my birthday, even uh, sort of that next year. And I was in high school at the time at this point. So, you know, I was definitely at that point where my gaming tastes were, were starting to solidify a little bit. And so that feels like it was sort of a late stage <laughs> sort of game that would be one of those staples that I would mm-hmm. remember forever. Uh, it was just very special for me. I think for me, I, you know, it's funny. The the things I I find myself thinking about are actually these memories that uh, I I'm a little conflicted about all these years later. Uh, <laughs> sure. Let me let me tell you how uh, the Dark Forces series ruined not one but two Christmases. <gasps> oh no! <laughs> uh, so if you remember the the original uh, Dark Forces, and it, this is so weird. That series, every game 
changed its name. So the first game was Dark Forces. <laughs> the next game was Dark Forces 2 Jedi Knight. The oh, third God, game was right. Jedi Knight 2 Jedi Outcast, I think. Anyway, the first game, though, Dark Forces, was maybe uncharitably uh, written off as, like, Star Wars Doom, uh, <laughs> sure. which it absolutely wasn't. It was it was a lot more than that. And I don't, I'm not sure I've ever been as excited for a game as I was about Dark Forces, because I had really just discovered Star Wars. Oh, and sure. the thought of like being in a first person game set in the Star Wars universe to like actually like fighting stormtroopers and like firing blaster rifles sounded like the best thing in the world. Oh yeah. So obviously like that was that was the game. And this was you know, this was this was in an era uh where I would get maybe like two or three games a year, right? And so like Dark Forces, this was this was the one I was planting my flag. My parents knew they were they were they they got their marching orders. Uh, this was this was it. This was the Red Rider BB gun. Nice, nice. And they delivered great. So it's super exciting, and uh, the problem is that it is the DOS era of oh. of PC gaming, and we are. I'm not even sure it was it, the computer we had wasn't bad. It was just one of those magical things that would happen uh, under DOS sometimes where you would install something and the installer would run and then the game would never launch. Oh, God. And that happened again and again. It was tantalizing because, like, everything seemed to install fine. If you remember, uh, LucasArts games had the same installer basically every time. Like, every single game uh, played the TIE Fighter sound effect. Uh, oh, yeah. to, to to test your sound your sound card and stuff like that. So each time it, it felt like maybe this time is, is going to be the one where it actually launches, and you, you know, you edit some config files and stuff like that, and and try to figure out what was going wrong. And so Christmas Day passes. I'm not playing this game. Uh, the 26th, my parents like really put their you know put their minds to it and try to figure out how to make it work. It just won't work. Oh, it, no. It's just not going to happen. Months go by. Oh my god! Like because eventually my parents were just like, "Well, I guess it it just doesn't work." Too bad. PC gaming. <laughs> they give up until eventually, uh, I like I, I beg and plead, and we 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 end up calling in like a a. There used to be a lot of these guys in in sort of the mid nineties. Uh, you know the sort of mom and pop computer specialists, and sure. we call one of those in. And I'm not sure whether he solved the problem or upsold us or what, but all I know is, like, a bunch of minor hardware upgrades later, (laughs) the game ran. I'm still not sure I've had as sweet a moment as the first time that game launched. Oh, man. Because it was like, I've been waiting months for this. And I, like, I was afraid to exit the game during that first session. I was like, no, I didn't, like did nobody, nobody touched this computer. I'm, I'm playing dark forces. Uh, and you know, it was, it was a cool game. Uh, it, it, it there was a lot of cool things to it. it the, the levels were huge and you couldn't save, which is kind of crazy, but you had limited lives. And so it, you know, I, I, I think looking at it from this era, I think I understand better now what made it special, uh, which is that it had a little bit of that, um, I don't know, Souls game uh, yeah. style. Like, you have to learn the level, and you really have to know what you're doing. And, and the tension keeps ratcheting up, because if you die, like, if you, if you die a few times, it's over. You have to do it all over again. Oh, man. So, 
that was that was my first Dark Horses Christmas. <laughs> um, a very Dark Horses Christmas. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it was an aptly named uh, series, as it turned <laughs> out. Like every time, like a Dark Horses game was coming around, uh, something something truly dark and, and toxic uh, entered <laughs> the air, and it really came to a head a few years later with Dark Forces Two Jedi Knight. And I wrote about this ages ago for The Escapist, so apologies if uh, a few people, a few readers are familiar with this story from ages ago. But Dark Forces 2 uh, is coming out, and it's I think that, I want to say that game just narrowly preceded Half-Life. Okay, yeah. So it was sort of of the peak of first-person shooter, like, storytelling and and craft, uh, right before the entire genre would would get completely rewritten uh, by Valve. But it was it was it was far more advanced. It had uh, you know 3D graphics, uh, which were cutting edge for the time. They looked amazing, and PC Gamer had a huge uh, preview uh, cover story on it. And I think I read that cover story like four times, and and sort of stared at the pictures and the light. there was a <laughs> oh, lightsaber. Yeah. Like you're going to get a lightsaber, and there going to be force powers. It was going to be the best. And then, uh. The holiday issue for PC Gamer rolls around, and they're reviewing the game in that issue, and I tear it open, and, like, the game gets, you know, an insanely high review score, whatever. Oh, man. Yeah. And I'm super excited, but here's the problem. Uh, we have a computer that's still running Windows, Windows 3.1 at this time. <laughs> Windows 95 has been out for, like, a year and a half. Uh, and we're still not, we, we still haven't made any upgrades. Uh, so I'm, I'm on like a 486 and the second generation of like Pentium chips are, are, are rolling out. And of course this game is, I can't run this game. This game is, this game is light years uh, beyond my PC. And so I'm reading this review and I get super, super depressed, but also oh. really darkly entitled. Like this is like, <laughs> like Emperor Palpatine was basically sitting in my goddamn living room at this point, like next to the Christmas tree, being like, "Yes, yes, let the hate flow." And so I like, you know, my dad, my dad and I are reading this this magazine together, and I just sort of I shove it away, and I think I even threw it on the floor, and I was oh, like, "What's no. the point? What's the point?" I don't even want to see this anymore. I don't want to hear about it. You you know we can't run this game. Why are you, why are you showing me this? Like this is terrible. Like we we don't have we don't have a computer that can run it because our computer is a piece of garbage, just like everything else. Oh my god! And now here's now here's the thing. In retrospect, I realized that there were probably more things behind that outburst than just the game, right? Like, sure. there was a reason that we hadn't upgraded a computer in a long time. There was a reason I had this vague sense of, like, anxiety about, like, money in the family. Because sure. my family had this notion that kids shouldn't ever worry about money. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. what never works in that is kids always have a sixth sense for when things are not kosher. Absolutely. And so, like, yeah, so there's a lot of anxiety already in the air. and. uh you know, we we've been through some uh, not tough times, but like things have been a little a little nip and tuck for a while. Lean I, I, times, yeah, yeah. And I think I was probably reacting to that, but nevertheless, the way it all manifested oh. was in this unhinged, entitled outburst <laughs> about how the PC gamer subscription itself was an act of torture, and <laughs> it was cruel to try to get me excited about Dark Forces. Oh, that is so. I'm. I'm going to assume you were 12 or 13 at this point. Yeah, you know, but I was uh, very much in whatever that. it was. I was old enough to know better. Sure. You know what I mean. Sure. But I. But still not old enough to maybe actually like be better. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I totally hear that. 
I, I'm just I, picturing you who I know you I don't were you tall as a kid? I was I was always kid? tall. I, okay, I, I okay. never had a growth spurt. I just I just steadily grew. I just I just picture you in your moment of teen angst and I and I just want to pet your head a little bit like, oh, it's it's going to be all right, buddy. It's going to be yeah. OK. It, it wasn't my finest hour. And, you know, that outburst. My dad got that got the dad look. Oh, no. Right? And yeah. in my in my in my mind's eye, like he sort of glances me, uh, glances at me over his newspaper with like a pince nez. He didn't read the paper or have a pince nez, but like in my <laughs> in my mind, like he's giving me that look over the glasses. Yeah. And so he gives me the luxury. He's like, you know, I we let you play these games because they're fun. I sort of sharing this hobby with you because it's, it's fun sharing it with you. It's, it's, it's sort of fun getting excited about games. But if this is, if this is what it means to you, if this is how you're going to act, uh, then obviously your, your values are, are way out of whack and we got to rethink this entire proposition. Oh, and immediately, like, I just feel like complete garbage, right? Because sure. I knew I'd gone too far. I felt the ground giving way beneath my feet. And then dad doesn't even get angry. He just makes me feel about like, you know, Two yep. feet tall. Yep. The and good old dad look. Yep. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, and so the thing is, I uh I spend this is probably a month before Christmas. And I spend a month getting really at peace with the way things are and the fact that I'm not gonna play any of the latest games. And the weird thing is it started this renaissance of like I started going back through the games I had, mm-hmm. playing a lot of old classics and stuff like that, and realizing like, damn. There's a lot of good stuff on this DOS machine. Like, it's great. Uh, And by the time Christmas rolled around, I was completely, like, I had this sort of zen calm about the entire (laughs) thing. Like, whatever was there under the tree was more than I deserved. Uh, It was totally cool. Uh, I think I got the TIE Fighter Collector CD-ROM that year, which was still going to run on the the machine. Um, and so we're sitting there and all the gifts are open. I got some good books and, you know, an older game and stuff like that. And, uh, I was completely at peace, completely happy. And then my mom's like, well, you know, did you have a good Christmas? And, you know, (laughs) obviously I did. And, uh, you know, and she's like, all right, well, it's time to clean up. All right, fine. So we start cleaning up the wrapping paper and everything and then taking stuff out and uh, then she's like, oh, wait, I need, to, I, I need your help uh, bringing something up from upstairs. Uh, oh, man. Yeah. Uh, the, there's a chest down there that I, I, need, I need you to help me bring up. And you know, you know where this is going. Like, oh, I, I go down is, the stairs. Oh, man. Yeah. I go down the stairs. My dad's behind me. Uh, and I turn the corner into the laundry room. And I'm like, all right, where is this thing we got to move? <laughs> and my mom just looks at me. And I look around the room and I do a double take because sitting there in the corner is uh, an IBM Aptiva. You know, I, I remember I ran over to it. I just had the had shocked look and my dad actually had the camera out and caught it. And I'm not sure, like the photo exists somewhere. I'm not sure where it is. Uh, but I run up to it and I start looking at it and I screech like, 200 megahertz? <laughs> like just mind blown. And it was amazing. And what do you know? Uh, we, we get this thing upstairs, and then, holy holy shit, Dark Forces 2 Jedi Knight is the last gift of Christmas. Oh, my God. And I am just, I am, I am, lose, I am losing my mind. Uh, and it's, <laughs> it's, it's amazing. And, you know, yeah, it was, even then, it wasn't a cutting-edge machine, and it was an IBM bloatware piece of crap in some ways. <laughs> sure. It didn't matter. It, 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 ran, it, it ran Dark Forces 2. 
but the weird thing is this. Even sort of, even, even at the moment of triumph, even, even, even at the moment of our, of our triumph, I had this weird sense of loss because I had been in such a good place with regard to like what I deserved and what I'd get and, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. That to get the gift almost in some ways made it feel like it cost me the lesson I'd sure. learned. Sure. Yeah. And it was it was great. It was like I've never had a more magical Christmas. Like this was the like I don't think I've ever had sort of a, a Christmas where my parents like pulled off a surprise of this magnitude, uh, you know, gave me the thing that I, I wanted and it expressed my, my desire for several times and never let on a bit that I was going to get it. It was it was magical, it was, it was perfect. But even then I had this vague sense that like, you know, an hour ago. I didn't need anything from this Christmas. Yeah. And now I've got more than I deserve. And I don't know how I feel about that. I still feel pretty good about it overall. Yeah. But it was but even then it was just this weird moment of wow, that was that was kind of the perfect Christmas, but uh, you know, the weird thing is I feel like before I got this gift, I had learned the true meaning of Christmas maybe <laughs> a little better. That story, Rob, oh my God, uh, not only do I feel the way I feel sort of when I watch this, you know, Providence Trinity Repertory Theater <laughs> version of the Christmas Carol, but I also am just overwhelmed by the thought that you were so much more mature at that age than I was, just infinitely more mature. My thoughts at that age were were mostly about sort of joining the USS, Enter- uh, actually <laughs> the Voyager, but also the Enterprise you know, when I grew up and also uh, playing every Star Wars game and every Nintendo game I could. Um, That's incredible. You learn the true meaning of Christmas and yet you had this black mirror moment at the end of it. (laughs) Just kind of like, yeah, did I need to, did I need this? Like, just such a beautiful realization that I'm picturing on your 12 or 13 or, or however old you were, your face almost. Man. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's like if you could have if you could have like taken a photograph of like my heart at that moment or something, it would be you'd be like you know child of capitalism, mid nineties or something like that. It, like that's kind of that's kind of the way it felt. But uh, it's it's something I find myself thinking about every year because you know it's rare you get that excited about things. Uh, you know, as you get older, like yeah. the moment, the mo- like the moment I be- I had enough agency to buy computer games when I wanted them and to live in an era of like the steam sale. Yeah. Uh, that's been great, but man, sometimes I get nostalgic for those days when like you had the game for Christmas yes. and that was it. And you devoted yourself utterly to that. And you didn't have this choice of, you know, all this like holiday bounty and entertainment, you you just had to focus in on the thing you had because that's the thing you really wanted. Yeah, it's, I constantly go back and think about, you know, if you told me when I was five, 10, even 15, you know, 13, 14, 15, that it would actually be kind of hard to think about what you want for Christmas. You know, if you're like sending hints to, to family members or significant others or, or whatever it is, you know, my, I, I still get Christmas gifts from my parents. They still ask me, you know, are there a couple of things you would like for Christmas? Like if you told me when I was young that it would actually be kind of hard to think of like, you know, 
few things that would be nice to have on the holidays, I would have punched you in the face and said, you are absolutely out of your mind. I want everything all the time. Of course I could have more than like three games a year. What, what is this madness that you spew? You know, it's just, oh man, I I can't get over how spoiled I am now (laughs) basically. And, and, you know, kind of was as a kid, you know, I, I, I was a I had a very, very comfortable childhood and I and I definitely had the things I wanted. But, you know, of course, when you're a little kid and you're waiting for Christmas, it's, you know, the biggest deal in the world is getting the toys that you want or the games that you want. For me, it was almost always games. And I guess I'll, I'll be cheesy again and just say I'm I'm grateful for that. Yeah. <laughs> Although I never did have that that moment of of that Christmas lesson the way that you did that. That is incredible. That is <laughs> that belongs in a Christmas Carol play almost. (laughs) You know, we'd love to hear about other people's uh, Christmas memories and and rituals. Uh, So, you know, we'd we'd love to get some, whatever you celebrate, you know, all the good things, (laughs) but yeah, we'd love to, we'd love to get some emails on that and and hear uh, what people, what people have done to sort of celebrate their, their gamer holidays. Uh, But for now, I think it's time to turn to our weekend correspondence. And uh, our first email here is from Mike K, and he asks, what game trends do you hope continue into next year, and what trends would you like to see buried with 2015? Thanks, and best wishes on the new show. Oh, man. Well, one trend I would love to see more of, uh, and this actually ties just a tiny little bit back into the TGA discussion we had earlier, but games about women that are being taken seriously. Uh, or, you know, sort of about women characters. Like, there was her story, there was Life is Strange, there was, you know, Lara Croft games are, are a good example of, you know, they're sort of games that are women's stories, and women are involved in making them, and, you know, they're being taken seriously. They're not just being taken as, like, oh, here's the pink game, here's the babysitting game. Basically, you know, yeah. games that are <laughs> games that are about women are I, I, actually, like, a real thing that people care about, and you don't need to be a woman to play it and enjoy it, and, you know, that sort of thing. I'm curious. Do you think, like, because I I haven't played the uh the the new Lara Croft series. Do you think it belongs in that company? Because like, just from the outside glancing at it, like, okay, Life is Strange is clearly like a story about the experience of like coming of age as as a young woman. Hmm. Uh, and her story is you know obviously it's literally called her story. I don't I don't think I need to just, justify this. <laughs> yeah, that's but like true. Lara Croft is still doing the thing where gotta kill the gotta kill all those people. Yes. Uh, which I'm not sure. Like, is, is that is that a is that a woman's story or is that a woman in the role of typical action protagonist? Honestly, I'm kind of okay keeping it in that category. It, mainly because I know that women are involved in sort of the writing of that character, and mm-hmm. because you know there are a lot of women on those teams that actually care about the fact that Lara is a woman, and I do like the idea of this sort of coming of age action hero story being specifically about a woman. Like, I think that's pretty cool. And I think it's cool that we're getting games in that budget that are, that are like that. You know, the first game, obviously it's not perfect by any means. There are some issues with it, but I think it's kind of cool that it's about a young woman. She's only what, 20, 21 in that, in that Mm -hmm. series. And she's still a little green. She's still a little, you know, kind of getting her boots on, so to speak, figuring out how to be this badass action hero. So, yeah, I I would it's certainly not the same kind of game. It's not a little tiny indie game the way, you know, the other two are. But I I would put it in that category. I would, you know, and I would also say, like, I think it's rad that games in sort of 
you know, I, I feel like the whole indie AAA divide is an artificial thing because certainly there are a lot of things sort of in between now. But I do think it's cool that things on every sort of end of the spectrum can be in this way. Like there, there are women sort of being present and being taken seriously in games with a massive budget and with a sort of moderate budget and with, you know, her story's budget, which I can only assume was, was fairly limited. I can tell you what I don't want to see more of. Yeah. I love open world games, but like we talked about last week, I've probably had enough <laughs> for, for a little while yet. Uh, maybe an open world game or two would be nice, but not you know, sort of like the five or six major, massive, huge open world games that we kind of got this year. I'd like to see maybe a little bit more focus uh, <laughs> sort of in the future, in the next year. Yeah, but at the, at the same time, like, because uh, I, I kind of wonder about this. Like, it, it feels like this year, at least, the open world games were a little less, uh, you know, big and open just for its own sake. Uh, you know, because I, I kind of feel like everything, there was this, there was this overall trend toward uh, the sort of ubification of mm. every single open world game. Yeah, where everything was an activity, not necessarily something that needed to happen for the purpose of a narrative or or even a clear like you know game design reason. It was just some crap for you to do and, yes. and distract yourself with. And I don't, I, I'm not sure because because I, I am I am curious to to hear what you what you think of this. D- does it feel like they've they've addressed that a little bit this year? That at least the the open world games we have now are a little less of these um sort of theme quest parks. by yeah, yeah exactly yeah yeah I, I mean i think that's absolutely fair this year definitely had like the witcher 3 is the perfect example and again we talked about that last week but the quest design actually feels like it is part of this world and it makes sense for this world and it's interesting and cool and you know you always learn a little bit more about either someone in this world or about the world itself you know that bloody baron quest was it was only kind of a side quest and it was it could have been an entire game it was just so rich and so well written and interesting um you know certainly there there is still a little bit of that in a lot of the games this year you know there there was still quite a bit of that in batman i suppose i would say the arkham knight game there was there was plenty of stuff that was kind of like all right <laughs> if you want to do the 100% thing you're going to be going you know sort of moving through a whole lot of fairly boring quests and samey quests and that sort of thing uh, but y- yes this year's crop of of open world games was better in that regard i do definitely agree with that i think maybe to you know further my point i th- i think what i'm saying is it would be super cool to play games that didn't take <laughs> 40 plus hours. Mm. I think maybe that's really where I'm going with this. Not that I don't love a good long game sometimes, but it is actually impossible to fully put, you know, sort of all of your time and attention and fully, fully play these games, all of them at least. You know, honestly, out of all the sort of huge open world games this year, I think the only one I've actually really, really, you know, gotten to see more than 80% of was probably Witcher 3. So... Well, you know, I probably saw more of that than in Fallout 4, but not, you know, yeah. not because I was necessarily playing it, more because I was playing it with Phil, my my coworker, or with my girlfriend, that sort of thing. So, yeah, I just, I, uh, I would say, not that I want open world games to end, just, you know, maybe a little bit more balance in the types of games that come out next year. Yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely see what you're saying. And I, and I feel like what, what I was kind of missing this year a little bit was, um, and this is going to be, this is going to sound weird. <laughs> I kind of wish there was another, like, there was another Wolfenstein this year, if, sure, if you know what I mean. Sure, like, totally. The, the sort of, yeah, like, old school, like, listen, <clears throat> here's, 
here's here's a self-contained experience that's linear and tells a story and everything in it uh is sort of authored and exists for a reason yes and i kind of would like a, a little more of that because yeah to a degree this 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 does sort of feel like the trend now is overwhelmingly toward these games that um you know there's there's sort of the main plot, but really the experience of playing them is is this sort of huge, I- expansive feeling. Uh, I'll I'll tell you what I really you know would like to see see buried in, in 2015 though, <laughs> and and that is and and this is you know this isn't even a new trend, uh, but I, I feel like it it's continuing to be annoying, and that is um, tons of little upsells and content sure. releases for uh, big games. Yeah. And this is I don't think like there's there's a lot of outrage around things like when the payday developers uh start introducing microtransactions and, and things like that. And I feel like some of that gets a little overdone, but but at the same time, I also think there are a lot of games now coming out that are being harmed by the fact that almost from day 1 uh, the publisher starts sort of splitting that community between various flavors of haves and have-nots. Yeah. And it starts with the pre-order system, but it actually continues through release, right? Like, you know, if you don't, like if a new Battlefield game uh, comes out or or the new or the new Battlefront, Star Wars Battlefront comes out, uh, really quickly, the entire thing exists to have this endless series of uh, little upsells that people are going to commit to and buy. And with each stage, you're basically saying that the people who don't get that stuff get left out and left yeah. behind. And I don't think that's really healthy, and I think it's it's definitely harm- harmful for creating any kind of game that's supposed to have a robust online community. That's kind of something that I, I feel like needs to get buried. And, you know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's wildly profitable and things like that. But I, but I just know when I'm, you know, signing into, uh, you know, Battlefield for, you know, a year after it comes out and the auto matcher itself is putting me into games that I can't join because I don't have the right content pack. We've got a problem. Yeah. That's, that's a serious issue. I've, uh, I've been playing a lot of Forza six, uh, lately, and it feels so far that they've they've done a good job with sort of you know you can you can always sort of buy new cars that you might need to race with with your credits that you earn in game as opposed to sort of the tokens and and so on and so forth that sort of thing. I, for me, it seems like it's always going to be a balancing act, and I and I do I, you know I echo what you say in, in hoping that uh, the whole upsell portion of it just kind of goes away as developers find ways and, and publishers obviously find ways to sort of. Uh, make that transition a little bit more seamless. Obviously, I understand folks need to make money to make games. That is fine, and and as long as the content is worthwhile and doesn't you know create second class citizens of your players, then fine. But I completely agree. Okay, awesome. So we have another email. This one is from Paul B. Hello, weekenders, and welcome back to the East Coast, Danielle. Well, thank you, Paul. I was wondering if either of you are following the VR scene and have thoughts about the relatively soon uh, upcoming releases of the Oculus and the Vive. Wow. Well, I've been pronouncing it Vive. Vive. That's what I mean. I, I have say. no idea. <laughs> and the Vive, rather. Okay, we'll, we'll just call it the Vive. Um, yeah, you know, I feel like 
I have not been following VR as much as I know a lot of other folks are. And it's not for any reason other than the fact that I just get sick when using it. I get nauseated. I need to stop and stare at a wall for a little while sometimes. And it's sort of like, I want to care about this stuff. I know it looks really cool. I'm sure somebody will fix the problem with me being nauseated. uh, But, you know, I, I, I... I would like to hear more about it, but I should probably sort of get over myself and my (laughs) sickness with it. Rob, are you following this stuff? I mean, I've been following the Oculus a little more closely because I've actually used it. Uh, I think my reaction to both of these is, is kind of the same, which is, uh, you know, it's, it's a boring, safe wait and see posture. Sure. Uh, Because (laughs) I I think there's like, when I read articles about the, the, the Vive, it sounds like wizard stuff that I don't fully understand. <laughs> sure. Like there's, there's a point where they say, oh, you can sort of move around the room in the Vive, and it can be any size room. And immediately I'm thinking, but okay, but if I'm living in a tiny little like Cambridge apartment or something, does that yeah. mean my experience is going to suck compared to someone who's got like a huge, expansive, like great room? Probably, unless <laughs> they figured out some magical way to get around it. Uh, and then the Vive has these weird like... Um, controllers you wear on your hands uh, they're not traditional controllers and they allow you to like manipulate objects in the world i think it's hugely exciting and there's tons of potential and i'm not even sure necessarily the the big developments are going to be for games for this stuff sure yeah so much as it's going to just be a way to allow people to sort of break free from from their surroundings like seriously like imagine like the, the dead of summer or something like you know you know like boston cameras just turned into like a horrible fetid swamp oh, uh, yes. during the summer <laughs> just, just imagine being able to like put on your vibe or something and like go spend the day hanging out in a fake cabin in like the alps in winter or something <laughs> sounds amazing i would do it in a heartbeat <laughs> yeah yeah i'm gonna butt in here into the recording so i can if, if that's okay, because I want to—I used a Vive a while, a little while ago, in a room that was set up for that exact purpose, and there was a like a fan that was used to simulate. <laughs> oh like, my god! Of motion, just like, but it was just like a big ass fan. It wasn't like yeah. Vive Fan XL. It was just a <laughs> a big fan, uh, and that was pretty hilarious. So I could imagine the like breezy tropical VR Vive experience featuring thermostat and somebody like you know piping in some pineapple scent or something as well the way disney world does it basically you know like oh here's the little scent you know smell a vision yeah. aspect of it too. vive and nest have partnered for yeah <laughs> oh, anyway that's i'm gonna duck back out but that's yeah. that's my vibe contribution oh that's awesome yeah good old vibe but but yeah, so I mean, I think I, I think the uh, the possibility for for doing mundane things in like awesome surroundings uh, is is really interesting for for both the the Oculus and the Vive. But ultimately, these things really depend on how many people get into them. And certainly, I think Oculus has has a big problem with how many people uh, report motion sickness. And supposedly, the Vive is better about it, but. Really, it's it's going to have to be a thing that works and works really well for for a lot of people. Uh, and I'm just not sure that uh, that you know this is going to be such a new tech that any kind of launch I don't think will be will be silky smooth. So I'm I'm, I'm just watching carefully and I'm hoping for the best because I'm really excited about it. But big changes like this rarely go smoothly. And with that, let's move right into our endorsements. Rob, what have you been watching or reading or super into lately? So I'm actually in the middle of revisiting one of my favorite uh, history books, a, a book by Robert Massey called Dreadnought. 
which mm-hmm. is the history of the naval arms race before World War I uh, between Great Britain and Imperial Germany. And it sounds like the most nerd wargamer type like <laughs> subject matter possible. But Massey is a, a truly brilliant storyteller and historian. And the other thing that's that's happening in this in this book is it's painting a picture of this entire era, the, the late Victorian and Edwardian eras, and what the world that existed before World War One actually looked like. Uh, for for Europeans at least, and that's mm. that's a very important distinction. Because if, if Dreadnought commits a sin, I think it is that it is to an extent a little bit in love with the sure. with the entire era and the days when the world was governed by a bunch of you know odd quirky little gentlemen working in <laughs> Whitehall. Uh, you know, it's 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 a weird thing, right? Because there's all these characters who appear in the book who were kind of raised to run the world from the time they were kids. And that was, you know, if you were, if you were of the right set in, in Britain, there was a very good chance that, you know, by your, your late twenties, early thirties, well, what, what do you want to do when you grow up? Well, I think I, I think I want to run three quarters of the British empire. Sounds good. <laughs> have at it. So the, yeah. the book gets a little lost in the haze of nostalgia for that. But at the same time, it's, it's really vivid in, in showing how, you know, in Britain, you have this amazing period of, of social upheaval, and the, the politics of the era are, are changing really drastically and really quickly. And but the politics are recognizable to us as traditional politics. And then the book cuts away to, meanwhile, over in Imperial Germany, and it's this complete... It's, it's the psychodrama happening in Imperial Germany, because it all comes down to... Uh, what Kaiser Wilhelm thinks. And all of that ties back to his terrible relationship with his mother, uh, the way people spend their entire lives sort of, you know, finding leverage on him to sort of turn him against uh, various factions in, in German politics. And by the, you know, so while, while Britain's undergoing all these exciting changes and evolving as a country, you have Germany where the Kaiser is getting more and more out of touch with reality and less and less predictable and then he's surrounded by these ministers whose approach to politics is basically how can we manipulate this this really damaged this really damaged man uh into our our point of view and so this this book brings all this to life uh you know so beautifully and so vividly that i i really think it's it's not only a fascinating exploration of uh why britain and germany find themselves on the road to world war 1 uh, you know, throughout the early 1900s, but also a really, really evocative portrait of of the people who who made this era, and showing how a, a few individuals really did sort of turn the course of history, uh, often for worse. Oh, it's a fascinating era. I don't know enough about it, but it, it, that sounds really, really cool. Um, speaking of uh, you know manipulating damaged men uh, to do things, I have been <laughs> obsessively watching Hannibal. Lately, uh, I watched something like seven episodes in a row last night, just obsessively, obsessively. Merry obsessively. Christmas. <laughs> Yay. So what appeals to me about this show the most? Obviously, it's it's I think it's a very sharply written show. It it does really amazing things with the character of Hannibal, which, you know, I, I am a sucker for the, you know, sort of the red for Red Dragon and for Hannibal, the movie. And of course, Silence of the Lambs, one of my favorite movies, actually. Um, from that era, especially just 
I love that stuff. I don't really even know if I could pinpoint exactly what it is other than the fact that it just feels like a really sort of juicy and pulpy kind of examination of, of, of insanity, I guess. And it's, it's fun to poke at those things, at least for the movies, but with the show, there are a few things that really stand out to me. It's just visually incredibly beautiful, beautifully visually designed. Uh, you know, it's a show about Hannibal Lecter, the infamous cannibal, Hannibal the cannibal, uh, and, and his time before being sort of locked away for his cannibalistic ways uh, and and his sort of relationship to Will Graham, who's a young FBI profiler, who's who's himself kind of damaged. Was oh, he the character from Manhunter? I I'm not sure, to be honest. Actually, no, no I think he is. He's the same guy from Red Dragon because I think Red Dragon he is. is. He's a, the same guy from Red okay, Dragon. Okay, because yeah. Red Dragon is itself kind of a is a second take on Manhunter. And uh, by the way, oh, if you okay. haven't seen Manhunter, uh, it's really really cool because it's Michael Mann making Ooh. a Hannibal movie that's not really about Hannibal. It's it's fascinating. So highly recommended if you haven't seen it. I think it okay, might I, be Okay, I will instant. need to. Yeah, I will absolutely need to, especially in, in the sort of haze of this current Hannibal obsession that I'm in. Uh, <laughs> um, the acting is great. What, what I love the most about it, other than the sort of juicy, pulpy elements of let's catch a serial killer today, uh, is the sort of fact that it feels like it's just this long seduction of one really deranged and interesting mind of, of one that is, that is sort of somebody who wants to do good quote unquote, somebody who wants to save lives and and profile these criminals and put them behind bars. He's being manipulated by this, this just mastermind evil genius who eats people and and makes art out of people's bodies. It's, it's, it's just fascinating. It feels like just Halloween (laughs) just packed into sort of this TV show and all the things I sort of like about Halloween and the, sort of dark, weird things that we permit ourselves to watch and get obsessed with when we're, you know, sort of in that mode. I know I'm, I'm coming to it a little too late. The show apparently ended forever, sadly, on a massive cliffhanger in August or something. And this is sort of on the recommendation of a friend uh, to just, just watch it and be obsessed with it, which it worked. The plan worked. <laughs> I'm head over heels for this show right now. Well, uh, you know, if even if it ends on on a massive cliffhanger, good news, they yeah. got him. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I'm having a lot of fun watching it with my girlfriend, who's never watched the movies, and she's just sort of like, "Is this, this is what, what happens later?" I'm like, "Well, this is the guy who this." You know, it's one of those kind of really having fun watching it with someone who has less of a obsession with with you know sort of overly dark police procedural <laughs> type stuff. But I'm having a lot of fun with it. It's really, really enjoyable. So with that, I think it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Chris Remo and it's hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. For Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo saying happy holidays and enjoy the finest of idle weekends. All right. So. Excellent. 200 megahertz?